You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath on WCPT 820. How many of you wait between shows, um, between weeks, for the time that I can get Mark Maxwell back on the show? He reports on politics and government uh, as the political editor at KSTK in St. Louis. He is a great reporter and a sharp observer of American politics, and I'm always grateful when he has the time to join us. Hi, Mark. Uh, hey, Edwin. Uh, wow. Very nice uh, introduction. I'll, I'll try to live up to that high bar, but I, I do appreciate uh, you having me on. I, I talk a lot on this show. You've heard me do it about the difference between governing and politics and how much one impacts the other. You, at St. Louis, right between Blue Illinois and Red Missouri, you are in a great place to talk about the differences you see in outcomes, you know, in the the real-life consequences of our different politics. And I wonder if you could just share some of your observations. Sure. One of the ways that we see that contrast is in the rush to do something now. I think politicians by themselves and parties as a whole are both trying to define themselves by who they are not. And, you know, we often refer to that pendulum swing in American politics. Well, it went this far to the right. Now it must go this far to the left. But now it's almost like state legislatures are competing with each other to rush farther to one pole or farther to the other uh, to sort of what there's this one upsmanship that's going on in uh, a lot of state capitals. You know, the abortion issue is one. Uh, the book ban issue is another. Uh, the trans health care issue is a third example uh, where you see states like Illinois and Missouri both have taken very different directions in all three of those issues. Um, and we can get into some of the specifics to talk about that. But I think that, that might speak a little bit to the overarching theme of what you suggested, that uh, there, there are these competing pushes, uh, these competing agendas to do and signal very different values. Uh, but as, as we do, as we race to those positions at the state level, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fallout. There, there are uh, in courtrooms, in hospitals, in administrative offices, there's a whole lot of people, you know, lawyers, frankly, trying to keep up with the changing policies and what it means for their business or for their lives. I'm, I'm interested in that list that you that you gave at the beginning. And when I think about it, I'm not sure that both sides have rushed to corners because 10 years ago, abortion was legal um, in the United States by constitutional right. Um, nobody was talking about trans health care, but it certainly wasn't an issue the state was um, forcing itself into, really. Um, uh, so, so what's happened recently is that, from my perspective, and correct me if you see it differently, is that one side has decided to weaponize these issues. The others decided to defend what had been American status quo and maybe then push back a little bit. But I don't see issues except, well, I don't even know if maybe guns that are arising on the left where they're saying the status quo, um, that we've lived with for a long time must radically change. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example of what we're seeing in this area and, and to explain what I meant by that. Uh, in, in Missouri, uh, as soon as the Supreme Court struck down the uh, you know, Roe versus Wade precedent, uh, 
in the Dobbs case, uh, there were the, the Missouri was the first state to say we're going to officially outlaw uh, any and all abortion except for in the rare instance where the life of the mother may be uh, at at risk. And even then, there are some stipulations and some hurdles to performing legal abortion at that point. Then there are legislators that started to go farther than that and say, if any anyone who practices healthcare or medicine in Missouri and in the St. Louis area, some of them also practice in Illinois, if that person was found to have participated in any kind of abortion procedure, there is a push to strip them of their license or to charge them with criminal penalties. There's this sort of push to cross into if you, mm-hmm. if you do that one thing in another state. So. Illinois went and said, we're going to change our licensing laws to make sure that any doctor that performs an abortion or that performs transgender health care uh, in Illinois, uh, if, they're, if they face a penalty on losing their medical license in another state, that would normally set off a, uh, a tripwire of a cascading events where, say, you were you know, found guilty of some sort of malpractice in one state. That's supposed to register on the radar in the state next door for good reason. But now yep. that's an example where... It's it's changing everything. So states are rushing. You know, I said rushing to corners. I didn't necessarily mean to ideological corners, but they're rushing to do the opposite of what the states around them are doing. Yeah, it's interesting, and they have and they have actual impact on people's lives. I mean, I I want to connect. We talk about politics, and, and you and I are fascinated with politics. You know, most America still has trouble showing up to vote. Politics isn't the center of their lives, thank goodness. But the the decisions that get made in government by politicians impact people's lives. So I'm trying to think about um, the impact of the politics that we're having. And we certainly know on maternal health, um, on the practice of medicine, um, there have been big changes wrought by decisions uh, on the right in America to change the way we have done things for many years. Mm. I, I think another factor that, that feeds into this, you mentioned low voter turnout or low voter participation. I think when enough of the public gets fed up with something or when enough of the public uh, finally makes up its mind, through, and we measure that through public polling or through you know each election, you start to see things slowly change. Uh, take, for example, the assault weapon issue. There was a Fox News poll just this week that showed overwhelming support for stronger background checks, universal background checks, limiting access to some types of weapons. And this was a Fox News poll. And I think that you see when when the public finally starts to shift, you, you do see the politicians start to react to it. Maybe not always as fast as you'd like, um, but I mean, you, you watch what some of the scenes we've seen in you know, Tennessee State House recently. Those moments do break through, and I think you know if there was a hundred percent voter turnout or eighty percent voter turnout, you have to wonder what that would look like uh, in terms yeah. of the policies that were advanced. Yeah, but but so I'm really interested I'm, in what you're telling me is very hopeful. I haven't seen it yet. Take guns, the issue that you raised in Illinois, the assault weapon ban that was passed uh, was just stayed by a judge in Southern Illinois. And the uh, folks who are the gun rights legislators haven't budged here or in Congress on this issue. I agree with you. The public has moved, but I don't think it's touched their, the, the political folks. Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, and that was a federal judge too, just to be clear, because there were, there were uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's some difference in between that. So, it, it, mm-hmm. look, that that mean it could be, you know, it's going to be appealed. The Pritzker administration's not pushed for that, but um, look, I think if if there's, you know, there, there's a growing consensus, uh, certainly from top Democratic leaders, they feel strong, they feel confident that going into 2024, that's an issue the Democrats can win on in swing states or close races uh, in swing districts. Um, is the issue of you know passing policies and procedures that would you know set some hurdles or some uh, barriers between a dangerous person and ready access or quick access to a gun? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with them more. I mean, and and my gosh, how many people are going to be shot between now and the next election? Every week, there's another massacre. But 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 Mark, why isn't that? Why aren't the Republicans in office today beginning to say, you know, trying to find a way to walk away from their hard line that they've held? Why are they trapped in a place that you just said? And I think you're completely right. The public isn't there. Well, just, I mean, last year, the Senate, the U.S. Senate took its first significant action on gun safety in two decades. Um, That's maybe didn't include everything that the gun uh, safety advocates wanted to see, but it's not nothing. Uh, there's a lot of funding. That's a fair point. That's a very fair point. I mean, you, you got a, you got a near divided Senate to take action on something. I think that, I think we have to just acknowledge that, I, that you know, yep. maybe it shouldn't be so uh, such, maybe that should be the status quo, but the U S Senate, the, the, the one place that likes to sit on its hands more than anyone uh, took action on this just last year. I think that's a sign yeah. of, the time's changing. I, that's a very optimistic and great point. Let's talk about some of the other ones. Um, law and order seems to be a dividing line. And uh, where you are, there's, you know, move to oust uh, a prosecutor um, who's in all kinds of trouble. And you, you've talked about that before. And I'd like to hear sort of an update on that. But also, when you look at at, you know, gun violence, which um, uh, the right really came after in places like my city, Chicago, for the violence that we have. And we have violence and it's really um, not good. But per capita gun violence, per capita homicides and per capita suicides are all higher in red states. Sure. But I, I, I think even the the new uh you know, Mayor Johnson, uh, who just won his election, even just referred to the fact that even in cities like Chicago, there are pockets uh, where most of the violence afflicts a small percentage of people, that that it's contained to places that are trapped in poverty. And I, I think that, like, those, yeah, it's terrible. Those, yep. those issues, at least where, how it occurs in St. Louis is, is uh, per capita worse than in Chicago. Um, it, it's in the last two years, it's been at the top or among the top five cities with the highest murder rate, uh, in the whole country. And it's just, I think since the pandemic, a lot of places dealt with that, but St. Louis dealt with it in a very significant way. And, and the state here doesn't have any limits on, doesn't have any age limits on carrying a weapon. If you can believe that, uh, you can be a 12 year old carrying, uh, an AR 15, in pub, you know, it, you can con- conceal carry as a 12-year-old or walk around and without any 
real restriction. And there are there's some legislative pushes to try and raise the age limit to 18 or to 21. And it doesn't appear to be going very far, even though the public supports that idea. Um, but there, yeah, the, 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 the violence in the, in the crime issue is something that's real. And the, the, the solutions aren't always easy. Um, but when, when you get into that political space, there's a lot of different actors and politicians who really want to start spinning hard and blaming a certain party or an outlet or, 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 or whatever. But there's, there's real solutions to be had there. If serious people can tune out some of the, the rhetoric and the spin and try to hammer out actual policies that can keep, keep people safe. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, but the, uh, I mean, they're hard to do, so neither party does them well. Um, but the but the use of crime um, as a political uh, tool seems very different in, in, by the parties these days. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us an update on the uh, prosecutor and what's going on there? Yeah, the circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, I, the fact that this is not national news by this point is, is maybe a little surprising to me. I guess I've seen, uh, <laughs> you know, the New York newsrooms sort of turn a blind eye to the Midwest before, so maybe I shouldn't be very surprised. Um, but this story is just very compelling. First of all, there's a, a St. Louis circuit attorney who has hundreds of violent felony cases in her office right now and is now down to just two assistant prosecutors, just two. She, she had five, like, a couple of weeks ago. A couple of them have resigned or left or quit, been forced out. One of them is going public as a whistleblower, saying just how bad everything is inside the office. Um, a complete and total meltdown. The, the circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, just this morning addressed a group of about 50 or 60 of her supporters at a black church in the north side of the city. And she sort of rallied them up, and she said she's never had a fair shake. Her office has been disinvested. That's not actually true. The city is given uh, 30 and 35% budget increases to her office in the last two years. Um, but she's, she's basically saying the judges, the police, everybody has ganged up on me and, and I'm the victim now. Um, but th- there are violent felony cases that are going to trial where there's hard evidence, where there's a suspect and the defense is showing up in court, the witnesses there in court, the victim is either not told about the case or maybe they did, they were told and they showed up. And there's no prosecutor there. In a number of instances, they're just not able to show up or keep up with the caseload. They're kind of blaming COVID on part of that. But, uh, you know, most of the country has adapted to, you know, the disruptions that we saw two and a half, three years ago. Um, and, and here we are in a situation where things have gotten so bad that a judge this week moved to hold the circuit attorney in, in indirect criminal contempt of court. Um, that process that will begin with hearings on uh, later this week, uh, this, this upcoming week. Um, but that's happening where the judges themselves are trying to hold her accountable. Then there's some politics involved in this next step, but the Missouri Attorney General has filed a legal proceeding to force her out of office, um, which would be rare, and some legal analysts are divided on whether this is the pro- appropriate method. There is no recall method in, in Missouri, Missouri for this type of position, so there's no way for voters to on their own, remove her. So the only eject button is from the attorney general, who just happens to be the Republican governor's appointee. So he's trying to win a Republican primary. He's picked a sort of foil in Kim Gardner, and that's helping to boost his profile with some earned media. So there's some politics there. Um, But you're seeing her lose her own staff. You're seeing judges trying to hold her in contempt. And now you have uh, the Missouri attorney general trying to throw her out of office and, and she's defiant saying she's not going to leave. You're going to have to take me out of here. You're going to have to drag me out. 
Um, so it's it's really something to watch, and I think the the, the most compelling sound or, or, or voices we hear from are the mothers of murder victims or shooting victims who say, we had, we had one lady this week, I don't think she could have said it any more simply. She said, I worked at Popeye's for 15 years. If I didn't show up to my job, they'd fire me. And there are, there are violent felony cases that are on the docket in St. Louis, and there's just nobody showing up to try them. Because there's staff shortage now because people have left or because they're just not showing up? Well, her, the office is probably supposed to have about 50 attorneys. Yeah. Uh, she claimed she claimed today that when she went toe-to-toe with the police and said, I'm not going to plant evidence, I'm not going to uh, proceed down the road toward wrongful convictions, that that is when lawyers started leaving her office. I don't know how true that is. That was her claim today. She's trying to frame herself as the one person standing in the gap between injustice and the police. Um, and that's her that's her her message, right? Her sales pitch to her followers. Um, but there was a lot of time between when she got elected in 2016 and now, where she's down to just two prosecuting attorneys who handle these felony cases. Um, and I think that there's an open question, right? I mean, if it, leaders are supposed to build teams, leaders are supposed to build staff. And, you know, I don't think it's just as easy as saying staffing shortage because I don't know many school districts that just have two teachers left. You know, a, a staffing shortage sounds like we're glossing over the issue. There, there, there's a real breakdown in, in this particular office that is unlike anything I've ever seen or covered. Yeah, this is terrible. So, Mark, so for those of you who are listening, you have a Democrat in office who is not doing the job. Um, and she's saying, look, I can't do the job because I won't do the corrupt job of helping the police frame young black men. That is a habit in St. Louis, as it was in Chicago, um, is um, probably still, although I think better than it was. Um, Kim Fox here in Chicago had some of the same difficulties. But look, to, to make this is a real important lesson to make big change is hard to do. And it requires that you know something about how government works. It requires more than um, identifying a problem. It requires a strategy for success and the ability to carry it out. And that's hard to do. And sometimes, uh, this is not partisan, um, sometimes uh, we Democrats fail at that with um, terrible consequences. And Mark's talking about now the only way out is for a Republican attorney general to find a way to relieve a Democratic state's attorney. State's attorney, what do you call them there? Uh, yeah, a circuit attorney is like a state's attorney here in, in, in yep. uh, Missouri. But, um, but right. there's, look, there's also a, there's a political pushback, too. There's a number of progressive prosecutors who have lined up and they said, look, that's a tough job. I don't know anybody that would really want it, but they're, they're throwing their hats in the ring. And there's a racial divide there. A lot of these are white lawyers that, that want to run for this job. But they're, they say, hey, we think we're farther left, more progressive than Kim Gardner. Um, and she's the first, city's first woman, uh, black woman prosecutor to hold that job. And yep. so she's made a big point about that part of her identity. And you're seeing these divides. But um, look, I, I, the, the politics are right. But one of my favorite political quotes ever was from Abraham Lincoln when he said, have I not destroyed my enemies by making them my friends? And you know, <laughs> there, there is a skill 
that I think works well in, in, in Detroit. I've talked about this with, with you on your program before, but in Detroit, there is a mayor there who has done a really good job of taking people that distrusted each other, right? Police and prosecutors are community activists. And somehow he's found a way to get them to think about the bigger picture and push in the same direction. Um, somebody else recently described, I think it might've been Rich Miller at Capital Facts, who said a coalition uh, in politics is often a misused term. We throw this word coalition around all the time. A coalition isn't just a bunch of different people that agree with each other. It's a group of people that hate each other, but have a shared goal. Um, and I, I think that's the thing that politics is supposed to be. It's supposed to take a whole bunch of people together that have very different ideas about what life looks like in America and what their experiences are and say, let's press pause on those divisions between us for the greater good. That's what politics is supposed to do. And we get, we, we lose that vision so often and get distracted with other little things. Yeah, in here in Chicago, it is what uh, Brandon Johnson did to get himself elected mayor. He brought um, coalitions together who do not generally see eye to eye. Uh, and and in fairness, um, on the national side, um, some of the, I don't know, crazy things, book fans, some of just the things that, that the MAGA world is going after brought together uh, on the Democratic side, people who don't really Maybe they don't like each other. Maybe they don't dislike each other. They don't spend time together. Civil rights activists, environmentalists, uh, uh, pro-choice activists, all, you know, large constituencies that really don't work together started to work together uh, because they saw in the MAGA world a common enemy to these uh, to the things they care cared about. So, I, Mark, I think it's starting to happen. In, in kind of weird ways, but probably not in your prosecutor's office. It, it could be. I, I think the other big trend that is similar but, but different is that we're seeing a troubling trend of people in power when they get isolated using their position of power to seek vengeance or to punish their opponent. Um, this has been part of the case with the book ban in, in Missouri. Um, there was a law passed last year that opened up libraries to a lot of legal liability if they had anything on their shelves that might uh, appeal to the current interest or sexual interest of, of a minor. And so this vague language was written in such a way that a lot of different libraries basically took it as censorship and just started taking lists off the, off the shelves. There were 300 books taken off uh, school library shelves in, in Missouri. Some of them you'd recognize, like the Handmaid's Tale, or parts of Game of Thrones, or uh, what were some others? There was a, a graphic novel depiction of uh, George Orwell's 1984, if you can believe it. A, a bit of irony. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these different books, if they had pictures in them, or if they had anything in them that might be uh, seen as colorful or a bit too risque or across the line, if it was available to, to, to a person 18 or under, that library could be facing serious uh, penalties. So the, the library association sued... Uh, and the ACLU joined them to say this is, you know, censorship. As a act of revenge, the Missouri House Republicans said, "Okay, we're going to we're going to defund all the libraries because we don't think that you, the Library Association, should be suing us. So we're going to take away your state funding." And it's just like this escalation of tit for tat of, and the Missouri Senate Republicans uh, they ended up saying, "Come on, guys, that's that's a step too far. We're going to put the money back." Um, you know, the money from the state, the government money wasn't even being used to fund this lawsuit in the first place. But I point these things out because this is not normal. 
it's not normal to have people in, in government, or it shouldn't be. No, no one should be okay with people using positions of public trust to hunt down or to punish their ideological others. And, and Why is it that the image of Ron DeSantis is floating before my eyes as you talk about this? Well, look, I think that I think that Donald Trump gave a template. I think that he he was one who wrapped himself up in in the victim's mantle and said, I'll fight this. And and so he gave a lot of voters who hadn't participated in elections before a new you know WWE style of politics that entertained and said, oh, wow, this is a guy who's fighting for us and created an appetite, created an itch that really hadn't been there before. Um, I was, I was, this is a, obviously a person you'll recognize. Uh, I was asked, I was sort of pressing Bruce Rauner recently to understand why he was so high on Ron DeSantis. You might know he's trying to support Ron DeSantis' bid for president. And I was like, Hey, I thought you were the guy who supported diversity in the workforce. And you talked about, you know, you, you, you made these, you, you remember that time when he stirred chocolate milk and talked about how diversity tastes good. You remember that sort of mm-hmm. video that went around? I, I I raised that. I sent him a picture of it, actually. I said, I thought you said diversity was good. I said, Ron DeSantis is attacking, attacking diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do, you, how do you make sense of this? And he said to me, well, look, we, we really have to uh, have someone who can beat Trump. In and in a primary, you have to have somebody who can out-Trump Trump. So in a way, he just sort of saw it as a shrug of the shoulders. And you know what? You got you to gotta beat fire with fire. And that was his, it's a strategic play that he was looking at. And I think there's a number of the people in the donor class who look at Ron DeSantis as somebody who might be that sort of bare knuckle guy who can out Trump Trump in that way. And this is one of these new lanes of competition that they've carved out where there's like this unwritten rule that part of your job is to make the other side pay. Uh, Yeah. Well, since when is American business, the other side, for Republicans. I mean, going after Disney is, it's got to be, I mean, it's repulsive and it's got to be repulsive, particularly to American business, usually supporters of Republicans when they see government attacking their businesses for political reasons. Yeah, I think that you're, you are hearing some of that from some of the Republicans. You, I think you're even hearing that from Nikki Haley, uh, who is running for president yep. as a Republican as well. There are there are some of the country club, chamber of commerce Republicans who certainly are uh, get a bit queasier about going after. And, and look, they're not going after corporate abuses per se of the public. They're going after corporate speech. It, it really opens a whole Pandora's box about uh, how much political speech companies can engage in. Uh, and if you want to tie it to Citizens United, I think that's an, it's sort of an interesting conversation. But it, it is sort of changing. Um, because there are a number of Republicans who are saying, well, well, we don't like that kind of social activist speech from companies. Well, okay. Would you apply that to political speech and political spending as well? Or where's the line? I guess that's the point. You can't, you, when you have rule of law, you set some standards, people understand what they are. You adjudicate uh, movement when it crosses the line. But what's happened today, whether it's, we're going to say something vague about book bans so that we can go after you when we want, or you have to self-censor. We'll say something vague about 
corporate free speech so that you're free to give unlimited amounts of money to my campaign. But if you say something I don't like, you're not free to do that. This moves us away from the rule of law and into uh, a very um, authoritarian, dictatorial uh, way of living. It definitely can go in that direction if we're not careful. I, I think that you know the, the whole promise of American democracy is that each of us have an equal share of this country. Um, but when some people can buy bigger <coughs> megaphones or say things that are more, you know, or, or people get to that position of power and then use that power to stifle, you know, one other example is at the ballot box. You know, Illinois is right now talking about doing uh, more of a ranked choice voting in the presidential primary to try to get a better read of the, where the public really is is heading, not just this binary black and white choice, but uh, a, a real understanding of what the public really wants to get a better vetting. And in Missouri, you have another contrast. They got rid of the presidential primary and they might not bring it back. There's been some talk about bringing it back before this year, this upcoming year in 24. Um, but right now it's next in favor of a caucus, which means that delegates and party bosses, people that are activists in the party, just a handful of people would pick the person who runs for president as the Republican and the person who represents you know, so when it comes time at the at the convention for the state of Missouri to throw its banners behind a candidate, it wouldn't be everybody voting. It would just be a few people picking in a, in a convention hall in Chicago. So that's the direction that you see these different states going. In. Another way where I, I, I think we have to mark I, the, the, the notability there because it's a silencing of the voter's voice. I, I need you to spend more time on that. It was on my list to talk about, um, and I don't think people yet understand what just happened. So would you tell everybody what really, I mean, the background is they used to have primaries like every other, like almost every other state, right? Voters would show up and say. There used to be a state that was more in play than you would think. Yep. And I'm going to vote in a Democratic primary and a vote in a Republican primary. I'm declaring independent. I'm voting this way. But but that was all to pick candidate, nominate candidates for a general election. And and it was very recently. Right. The legislature said, yeah, we're done with that. Just it was just last year. So it was after the election of Joe Biden and yep. just last year when the secretary of state threw his weight behind this. Uh, Jay Ashcroft, the son of John Ashcroft, he's the secretary of state running for governor in the Republican primary now in Missouri. But he endorsed this idea to say, let's go ahead and get rid of the presidential primary because it's nothing more than a vanity contest in his words. He says, you know, candidates come here and they spend money and, you know, just get a little attention for themselves. And that's all it really is. And, you know, and he downplayed the idea that party primaries were an important part of the democratic process. Um, well, he got enough support and there were enough people in the legislature who agreed with that and so when they passed their big election law change which now requires a photo id to vote in person and a number of other things uh this was a part of that election reform law that says we're no longer going to have presidential election primaries in the state of missouri they can change that uh, if the legislature gets its act together in the next few weeks before they let out for the summer um but it's looking less and less likely um after one of those debates sort of fell apart last week Yep. And this impacts both parties? Both parties. Um, yep. It's the whole state. It's just so the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, because the state sets their election laws, they would basically send delegates to the convention. The delegates would get together and say, who do we like? They would pick somebody. They would throw their support that way. Um, it just it just takes – and it, you know what else it does is it gives presidential candidates zero reason to speak to voters in Missouri during the primary process. None at all. Right. They can speak to donors and the donors can then. Yep. It's very old school. Very, very old school. It also goes to the independent legislature doctrine 
that the Supreme Court may or may not be hearing. Um, they were hearing it because of a case uh, in in the Carolinas, but the, the good uh, judges in Carolina reversed themselves. So I don't know how the Supreme Court can hear more versus Harper anymore. But the notion that a state legislature alone has the power, has this kind of power over elections and what they mean. Well, a lot of people in your audience may know, and maybe it's a, a, a trivia question on Jeopardy or something, but we didn't always elect our U.S. senators. It wasn't a vote of the people. It was the state legislatures that we get together and say, who do we want to send? If we right. Had- it took a constitutional amendment to change that. Mm-hmm. So, and I think there are academics that measure the direction of countries in the direction of free speech or in the direction of democracy. And I think that objectively speaking, taking voters out of the primary presidential process is a step away from exercising democracy. Yeah, I'm actually teaching a course in DePaul on uh, issues in American democracy, and I use those rankings of democracies around the world and all of those measures, and we apply them, and you could not be more right. We are um, in some ways on the wrong track when it comes to is our democracy stronger. Um, I I, want to transition for a minute because you have a unique uh, seat also on the topic of your senator, Mr. Hawley, and he's been involved in one of the most controversial, or his wife has been. What is their involvement in Mephipristone litigation? Uh, Mrs. Hawley is involved in, as a, as a, I believe she's a lead counsel or she's highly, uh, she, she's at a high level in this nonprofit organization that uh, sued to block the FDA rules or the FDA approval process around mifepristone. What's uh-huh. that minute? Um, I believe it was just a re- more recent development that the FDA expanded its mail order access for this abortion pill. Uh, important context to know that patients really only uh, can get this pill in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. So we're not talking about a late term. We're talking about the first 10 weeks. Um, I, th- th- this is also happening at a time when states are restricting. And also patients in Missouri, doctors in Missouri cannot prescribe mifepristone. A patient would have to go across the border into Granite City or into some other part of southern Illinois to get a prescription and to utilize uh, these these drugs. Um, so that's part of the facts on the ground. I believe it was when the FDA relaxed its, because it, it used to be that you couldn't just order this drug in the mail. You had to go in person, it'd be prescribed in person, be under the care of a doctor during the whole procedure. And some of those regulations were relaxed a bit. The FDA does Yeah, but that, that. they were relaxed 10 years ago. <laughs> Not recently. Right. <laughs> well, right. But that's the part they're going after. Yep. It, it, it was. You're right. It was that part of it that was relaxed, and and these, uh, I think, the anti-abortion groups are saying that part of it isn't safe. Uh, the judge in Texas, Mr. Kasmerick, uh, he was a campaign owner to Josh Hawley's campaign in 2018. He was then seated on the bench um, when President Trump appointed him, and Senator Hawley voted to confirm him from the Senate Judiciary Committee, and. Now it was Senator Hawley's wife and her advocacy group that brought the case before the court um, to to argue. And he was there's sort of a, a, a unique 
or nifty little trick you can use in the federal court system where in, in Texas, there's this one district where you can basically pick your judge. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of glossing over the specifics of it, but th- that's basically how it works out. And so this judge ended up hearing that case and, and his rationale from the bench was, uh, some of, some of his critics said his arguments or his rulings weren't rooted in law or in medicine, but in ideological opinion that, um, the drug wasn't safe for the unborn, that it, it killed the unborn. And that, that was his sort of, I would, I would say rhetoric that landed into his ruling, um, which started the Supreme Court case. So that's, that's a bit of the practical background, the context around and, and the political involvement in this uh, recent issue. Uh, and I'm, is, uh, is the senator on record anywhere as saying that abortion ought to be up to the states? He is. Um, he said, uh, and I, I, you know, we get these little five-minute windows to press him on these uh, most weeks when they're in session. Yep. And when when the Dobbs decision came down, I asked him, and he said, well, I, you know, I, he kind of tiptoed away from it, said, you know, I wouldn't legislate it, um, but I'm going to leave this to the legislature. I think this should belong to the states. So I asked him recently, yeah. I said, uh, in a recent interview, I said, so this is a judge that made this ruling. You helped appoint him. He was a campaign donor of yours. Are you comfortable with this being the national policy? Um, and again, he said he wouldn't legislate that, but he defended the court ruling. And he said, I think the court rule is, is making a rational decision, he said. And so I think they, Republicans who oppose abortion and, and support abortion restrictions, they may not want to put their face on the billboard next to all those restrictions, but they're comfortable letting the judge do it. And, you know, they don't have to yeah. own it that way. Well, you can't say it's up to the states and then say it's not. Right, that, it, that by judicial fiat, it's not up to the states. It's a, it's a, what's what, the, what they complained about Roe, that Roe said it's not up to the states. There's uh, certain protections that are there no matter what. Now they've wiped all the protections away, claiming it's up to the states, and now they want to say not up to the states. I, I don't know how citizens listen to this and not become enormously cynical. Right. Well, and I mean, just another practical point here is that each state doesn't have its own FDA and, you know, going after the federal, you know, drug authorization process in itself does tug at the federalist, you know, system and the state divisions of all these different policies. Again, you know, in Missouri, you can't get access to misoprostone, this abortion drug. You can't do it. Um, But there were some people that wanted to bring those, you know, yeah. it, it was a really, it's really interesting legal theory to go after the FDA in this manner. And I don't know what the Supreme Court or the appeals process will end up doing with all this. Um, but you, you're right. You, you, you really can't have it be up to the states and uh, set a, a national policy. And look, Mike Pence is running for president or he's, he's considering running for president by saying that he thinks President Trump was wrong in saying leave it to the states. And Mike Pence is advocating. He's very clear. He, he says it should be illegal everywhere. He would. He, yeah. Mike Pence is not walking. I mean, he's. I'm no fan of his, but he's not uh, unclear about this. He thinks abortion should be illegal under any circumstances everywhere, and there is no up to the states on this. For him, he he heard it from God himself, and it can't be allowed. Well, and I think Which, they, you know it's. It's important to just note the differences in positions in the Republican Party. Yep. There, there are people like yep. former President Trump who said, leave it to the states. <clears throat> then there's people like uh, Josh Hawley who said, leave it to the states, but I'm okay with this court ruling. I wouldn't make it my own. I wouldn't vote on it in Congress. 
And you yep. know, it's less clear. And then there's people like Mike Pence who say, no, I think we should, you know, let the states restrict it and let the federal government restrict it. I, I in, you know, in order to prepare for our conversation, I put myself through listening to a speech of Senator Hawley's where he says something I, I just don't understand the position because it's it's not only anti-democratic, and I mean that small b, but incoherent, even though it's emotionally powerful. He says people, let's say people like me, really, are trying to transform American culture. He says, and to do that, we will go after every institution, schools, government, even families, he says. Um, and, and, you know, that, and, and he says that, he says, we're the enemy of America because we're trying to transform even families. And I'm like, what does he mean we're trying to transform families? What, and apparently it means that if parents and their kids get together and they decide that, uh, you know, a kid's gay or something, that, that we're allowing them to have that conversation and not forcing them to not have it. But somehow that makes us the aggressor and on the attack. And I hear that from him, and I hear it when I go listen to um, uh, people who are unabashedly call themselves Christian nationalists. Hawley doesn't do it. He says, he says we are um, uh, conservative nationalists. But there's nothing conservative about telling everybody what to do. It's very confusing. Yeah, I didn't hear that speech, and I'm not familiar with the, the context, but I, I, I do think that uh, his background as a religious liberties attorney uh, advocating for you know, religious groups um, is closely aligned with a lot of his rhetoric and his positions. And I think that there are a number of people in the Republican Party that are more comfortable fusing together the powerful elements of religion and politics than I think the founders intended. Um, and And that's, you know, an academic question. It's a practical question. Um, I think uh, p- part of it, too, and I, I've heard some people describe it this way. In a world where social media just pumps our brains full of information, rapid fire, and it's hard, it's confusing to know how to separate facts from fiction. Well, facts are harder to find. I think when people are just under this deluge of, of confusing information, I think sometimes there's a temptation to lean back on the things that you feel, the, thing, the, the things that you might believe more than the things that you can see and verify, because the things you can see and verify are in question so constantly. They're being, you know, ripped apart or they're, they're being uh, muddled with other confusing or misleading information. So I think there is a, I've heard people describe this shift away from those verifiable agreed upon facts that we all operate from and a tilt toward perhaps the more powerful thing that we can feel that, that thing of religion and faith and, and some of, some of those um, elements, which uh, shifts some of the way people would like to see politics happen. Um, and I look, frankly, there's a lot of politicians on the right and the left who, who have done that effectively in, in terms of rhetoric and weaving in, um, you know, their religion, their faith into who they are and into how they would lead the public. Um, and that can be an effective rhetorical device. Um, but when you start to see any, you know, respect of religion um, being advanced in the government, you know, then you have constitutional issues. Yes, and civil society issues and all the rest, because then you get into one, one, one group's religion is more uh, valuable than another's. And that was something the founders 
were appalled by. Yep, appalled by. And our whole history has been that way. So that's really interesting. And, you know, I, I also note, Mark, we are in a time of the steepest decline in attendance at religious um, uh, institutions. Church attendance is down an all-time low in America. The pandemic, um, I think, cost um, American congregations something like 20% of their regular goers, and they haven't come back. So we're looking at um, a, a different place for faith. And not finding it in, um, you know, there was always a render unto Caesar, for gosh sakes, but the rest of it is, you know, the holy time is a different time. There's a, the, the line's been blurred. Instead of going to church, people are going to vote, but they're treating it as if it's the same thing. Right. And, and there could all, it could also just be that, you know, the way to win a primary is to find 20% of people who agree about something. And the last 20% of people who agreed about anything are, you know, look, I, I think that our country's history did sort of diminish or how should I say this? The, the, when, when you talk to some of the Republicans, people like Darren Bailey, who ran in the Illinois Republican primary, um, that's a very strong religious grassroots group of people. A lot of them are new to, newer to politics. A lot of them haven't really been in a lot of campaigns or been active in a lot of elections. A lot of them have felt for a long time, like, well, politics isn't really where I'm going to get my bang for my buck. I'm going to focus elsewhere. I think since President Trump, there was sort of a a political awakening in that part of America, in the, in the, from the pews and the church houses that really hadn't been very politically active or vocal. Um, And, and, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene speaks to that a little bit. Um, She's not, she's not the only one. There's a lot of different members of Congress or different uh, elected officials who sort of came up in that new crop or new class of new recruits. And they speak to a part of, you know, uh, um, rural Americans or, uh, you know, some, some in times in suburbs who just sort of felt like they were left out of politics for a long time. And they're more powerful in primaries now than they used to be, partly because of our yeah. you know, continued erosion of the electoral incentive process and how we uh, keep going more you know, to the polls in, in primaries. Well, and now in your state where they're not even going to bother to have a primary so they can just anoint somebody. Um, because, right. So I look, I welcome all these new voices into our debate. I do. I welcome them into the democratic process, but that means they have to be part of a democratic process. I do not and will not abide having people step into a democratic process in order to make it less democratic and more autocratic. That is a danger. And, you know, folks like me, me, you get to report on it and I get to fight it. <laughs> it's just, that's, that's the, that's the place I think we found ourselves. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. interesting to watch. And I, there, you know, it's, it's always, uh, it's always interesting to see how these different movements take shape. Yeah. Well, Mark, we've run out of time. I really appreciate, as always, catching up with you and, and being able to have the time for a conversation like this. Um, and I look forward to our next chat. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Good to talk to you. You bet. All right, everybody, we're going to break from the news. Uh, and when we come back, um, we're going to move from Missouri to Iowa. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.